Welcome to The Hammer Factor, where we help successful athletes and professionals share their genius with the world. I'm John Grace, your host here at The Hot Seat, and now it's time to light this fire. We have a very special show lined up, not only because we have an incredible guest, but we've added this guest book to our store go to the hammer factor store the first book we've ever had in the store so that's exciting in the hot seat today we have expedition kayaker published author and first woman to paddle the entire amazon river darcy gector thanks john it's awesome to be here chatting with you how are you doing pretty good yeah life is good considering the circumstances we're in what's your uh you know can't shake hands anymore hugs are out you know like I'm kind of leaning towards the fist pump. So, yeah, I've been doing like air high fives or elbow bump. <laughs> elbow bump. Do you think yeah. the, you think the fist pump is too risky? I feel like I can keep more distance with that. Yeah, you can keep distance, but then, you know, your hand's touching someone else's hand. What if you like <laughs> rub your knuckle on your nose afterwards? Oh. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. I'm really excited to not only hear about your trip, but hear about the process of writing your book. I mean, I, it's hard for me to get 500 words down at a time. I really want to talk about all that. Um, yeah, the book writing was definitely epic for me. It was, yeah, it was kind of an insane process, but very challenging, but very rewarding too. Yeah, we got so much here we want to talk about. Let's get, let's get right into it. Let's start from the top. What's something people probably don't know about you? So I'm super shy and I'm a really private person. So I bet there's a lot people don't know about me or maybe there was until the book came out. But um, maybe that I'm like a super book nerd. Like at any one time, I'm always reading like at least four books. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a little bit hard traveling all the time, but I always make time to read at least every day. So or read a little bit at least every day. Throw out some titles. What's some of your favorite titles? Ooh, favorites. Um, so I got really into James Baldwin a couple of years back, and he's a fiction writer, kind of talking about race relations in the 1950s and stuff. And I got super into him. Um, oh, I can't think of a title right now. Tell me why the train won't come, something like that. But um, I also love The River Why by James Duncan. I love Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. And Big Rock Candy Mountain by Wallace Stegner. I'll throw those ones out there for now. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Aspen, Colorado. Okay. So what were you on the slopes as a kid? What were, what were you like before you were on the rivers leading expeditions and whatnot? So I like to ski a lot. I was never a racer, but I loved free skiing, um, basically any chance I could get. Uh, I was big tomboy as a kid and Aspen was a pretty cool place to be a kid and be outdoors because we had a lot of freedom from our parents since they felt it was a pretty safe town and there was like a free bus system that went pretty much anywhere so we could just take the bus somewhere for the day go on a hiking adventure or you know we called it rock climbing but it was basically climbing without ropes and uh, cliff jumping playing in the river just anything we could do to pass the time outdoors how'd you get into paddling I got into paddling because, so my middle school track coach was a raft guide during the summers, and after I graduated high school, I was out in town looking for a landscaping job because I knew that I wanted to be outside. I just couldn't think of anything else, and 
I ran into him and he said, don't be a landscaper, come be a raft guide. We're hiring next weekend. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds like a lot more fun than being a landscaper. So I took his advice and got a job as a raft guide. And then all the other raft guides went kayaking and like kayaking hadn't, it didn't necessarily have a ton of appeal to me, but I was 18. All these other raft guides were like 25 to 30. And I just thought they were like the coolest people in the world. So I was like, I got to start kayaking so I can hang out with them more. And that's how it started. And I, they would let me go with them, but they weren't really that interested in teaching me anything. Like, (laughs) I mean, including like how to pull your spray skirt off, which it seems kind of obvious, but when you haven't ever thought about it and until you tip over in a rapid the first time, it's kind of, it doesn't come intuitively, but, uh, so I really kind of hated kayaking for the first year, but once I started figuring out a few things like how to roll and stuff like that, life got a lot better. Did anyone take you under your wing at that time or were you just scrapping through it? Um, there was a lot of scrapping through in the first year and then um, I transferred to Montana State. I started college at Skidmore College in New York and I transferred to Montana State in 1998 and I met Adam Majors and he really took me under his wing and that's um, <clears throat> where I like got a lot better at rolling at kayaking and he is the person that introduced me to the whole like expedition style of kayaking and overnight kayaking trips and uh, my first overnight kayaking trips were in Nepal with Adam. Really? Those were your first expeditions? Yep. yep. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> Yeah, I had never left North America before. I had never done an overnight kayaking trip, and it was, yeah, the whole thing was definitely kind of mind-blowing. So you've been at the Expedition Game for several years. How many years? Yes. Well, 1998 till now, so 22 years, I guess. What rivers stick out? What are some of your favorites? Obviously, we're going to get to the Amazon, so you can leave that out right now. Leave um, out the Amazon. Yeah, leave okay. out the Amazon. But what are some of the some of the trips that really stick out? Um, let's see. So, you know, that, that Nepal trip was really formative for me and I wouldn't say like, it was a really hard trip. I don't necessarily look back on it with really fond memories because I wasn't very good at kayaking and we were doing stuff that was a little bit too hard for me. Like I didn't even own dry bags, which is kind of insane to think about, but I just like threw everything in the back of my boat and hoped it stayed like kind of dry. Um, but just, you know, the whole concept of traveling with a kayak and you know I knew that we were seeing these parts of Nepal that most other people weren't getting to see and uh, that seemed really special to me so yeah that trip sticks out in kind of starting the passion and um, I guess kayaking the Stikine River is maybe my fondest memory because that that was like the, the river trip that I worked the hardest to achieve and I really had wanted to do it for a long time and had like many, many years of training and then failure either because of an injury or like one year the river didn't get low enough that I felt comfortable going in. And so it just was kind of this ongoing process. And at a certain point, it actually started to seem like impossible. And and then so when I finally did it, that was like the best accomplishment of my kayaking career. What year was that? 2016. Man, there is something. I'm glad you touched on that. There is something magic about how efficient you can be at exploring a river with all your stuff in a kayak. I mm-hmm, mean, it's definitely. it's so different than being in a raft or even like backpacking or bikepacking or anything. It's just amazing. 
I don't know how to describe it. It's I, I, people will ask me all the time about the draw of that, and it's very hard for me to to put it into words. Yeah, it's kind of this nice um, minimalist way of living. You can cover ground really fast and see these amazing places without a lot of logistical faff. You know, it's it is pretty amazing. Yeah, you don't load your boat, you don't unload your boat, you don't do all that. You literally are just one shuttle and you're out there for days. Yeah. How was your sticking trip? It was uh, perfect. It really was. You know, I had like so many worries of stuff that might go wrong, but. Um, yeah, so Don and I went to Russia that summer too, and we're kayaking in uh, Siberia in the Altai Mountains. And so we were in really good shape. We had a lot of practice. It was a high water year in Russia, so we had a lot of class five big water that, you know, just recently under our belts. And um, just Don and I did it. We didn't see another person on the river. We were kind of like in between. A big group was ahead of us, a big group was behind us. But yeah, so we just had the whole place to ourselves. We both paddled well, didn't have any problems, and it was like a really – I always think it's cheesy when people say it was a magical experience, but it really was a magical experience. Oh, I don't think that's cheesy at all. <laughs> just the two of you. Yeah, just the two of us. So, not cool. What was kind of the crux out there for you? Well, two funny things. One, like I was really, really nervous. You know, this is like the culmination of 10 years of training and practice and planning and desires – and so I was just like super nervous when we got to entry falls and I tipped over in like the littlest boil at the beginning. And just when I was underwater, though, I was almost laughing at myself. I was like, this is exactly what you need to just relax. And then I rolled up. And after that, it was like, oh, my God, I feel so much better now. And so, yeah, that was, um, you know, maybe that situation could have gone either way. If like panic hit my brain when I tipped over, it would have been a different story. But it was just literally like tipped over and laughed at myself in my mind and that just really relaxed me for the rest of the time. And then, um, yeah, I guess uh, Wassons was another one that was like really nerve wracking in my mind. And we scouted and we didn't like the how the right sneak looked. So we decided to run the main line. And yeah, I just kind of remember having this feeling like, I can't believe I'm here doing this. And so far it's going well, but I hope it keeps going well. <laughs> Those boils right above that one are crazy on the left. Yeah, and it's so amazing to be kind of like paddling as hard left as you possibly can to fight the boils when you know you just have to pick them the exact right moment to start, <laughs> start paddling as hard left right as you can. Yeah, yeah, and pass or fail is right above there. That's a that's a crux section, I think. Yeah, for sure. It it really was, and we actually, um, yeah, that that first day it was I was the most nervous for the first day and after we had finished that it was I mean I was still definitely nervous for a lot of the rapids downstream but I definitely just had a better feeling like okay I belong here this is going well this is good so, sick yeah so when did your attention turn to the Amazon what was your experience down there um okay so the Amazon trip was not my idea you know Don and I uh, like you mentioned, we own Small World Adventures. So we spent a lot of time in Ecuador, spent a lot of time in Peru as well, like kind of on the Amazon tributaries. But the actual idea to kayak source to sea on the Amazon was um, a client of ours named David Midgley. And he basically, he's a brilliant computer programmer. He lives in London. And he was sort of having a midlife crisis that he felt like he was, might waste his life sitting in front of a computer. So he wanted some big adventure. And he was doing research and discovered that uh, more people had walked on the moon 
then had kayaked the Amazon from source to sea. And actually at that point, no one had kayaked the entire thing because everyone else who had descended the Amazon source to sea had either rafted or walked around the whitewater section. So he decided this would be his kind of big adventure in his life, but he didn't know how to kayak. He had never gone camping and he really was like, you couldn't imagine a more unprepared person for something like this. So for our listeners who don't know, what is Small World Adventures? Small World Adventures is a whitewater guiding business, and we lead week-long trips in Ecuador. We also do Middle Fork Salmon and Grand Canyon. But yeah, our specialty is uh, class three to class five guided trips in Ecuador. None, absolutely none. Okay, and so Midge has no kayaking experience or very little. Absolutely not. And he comes to you with this idea or you took him on like a first time kayaking trip. How did, how did you, your union with Midge? Okay. Midge is in your book. I can't, this is hard for me because I've read, okay. I haven't got okay. all the way through your book, but I've got a lot of it and I got to be careful okay, about so, what I say. Cause I okay, yeah. So Midge away, had but never I been in a, a little kayak bit more backstory he decided on he would kayak the Amazon from source to sea. And before I met him, he joined his a canoe and kayak club in London and he did get a little bit of experience. And so when he first contacted me, he was about to the level of a class three kayaker. And he said, hey, I'm training to kayak the Amazon from source to sea, but there's class five whitewater in the Amazon headwaters and I need someone to train me to be a class five kayaker. And of course I'm thinking like, who is this idiot? Like there's no way, you know, he had mentioned that he recently started kayaking and all that, but I was like, okay, you know, here's what we can do for you. and. So he started coming to Ecuador, yeah, with the idea that we would teach him to be a class five kayaker. And he came for eight years and sometimes for just two weeks, sometimes for as long as two months every winter. And um, yeah, maybe after about the third winter, we started seeing how truly dedicated he was to this mission. And, you know, one thing that really kind of solidified it for me is I am very like technologically not advanced and Small World didn't have a Facebook page. And Midge, you know, being this smart computer guy, he's like, I cannot believe you don't have a Facebook page. You guys are total idiots. You've got to do this. And he was like a heavy smoker at that point. And um, I told him, like, Midge, you're a total idiot. You can't kayak the Amazon if you're smoking like four packs of cigarettes a day. So we made a pact that I would make a Facebook page if he quit smoking. And then we came back the next year and we had both upheld our end of the bargains. And I just thought... Yeah, I thought, man, if he quit smoking, he really must be serious about this. Oh, so, the stars are aligning. Yeah, he trained with us for eight years. He did become a Class 5 kayaker, and uh, then he invited us to go with him to help him out on the journey, and we said yes. Okay. Holy moly. Time to well, plan the trip. I guess I then have it's to... time to plan the trip. I just wanted to give a little plug to David Midgley real quick. Um, for people that haven't read the book yet, I won't give anything away, but I am a little bit mean to him in the book at times. But I do have so much respect for him because I've never known somebody who came up with such an audacious goal, you know, starting from zero or maybe even negative in his case and actually seeing it through. And it took him a decade of training before he did it, and he's – with it which is pretty amazing 
So then it's time to get the logistics. What was your plan? Where were you going to start? What river were you going to go down? Fill me in on your plan with as much detail as you can for someone who maybe doesn't exactly know the mountain range. Okay. So originally we were going to start on the Aparimac River, which from 1950 until 2012, pretty much the entire geographic world agreed was the source of the Amazon. And their defining source um, by being like the longest or the most distant tributary to the mouth of the Amazon. So it was the Aparimac River in Peru. And uh, Midge bought tons of topo maps and did a bunch of research. He even went and did, he rafted some of the sections to check out what the whitewater is like. And then um, in 2012, so one year before our expedition, Rocky Contos discovered that the Montaro River was 47 miles longer than the Aparimac. And so we decided to switch plans um, and start on the Montaro River instead. And um, yeah, so what that meant, this was kind of like a last minute scramble because it was, yeah, maybe even a little bit less than a year before we went. And so we actually didn't end up getting topo maps for the Montaro River. We talked to Rocky a bit and he he didn't give us like very specific beta, but he did say he had gone and run the entire river and he did say, you know, it's all runnable, nothing tricky, you'll figure it out. And so... You know, we did at least have the the information that somebody had successfully kayaked it before. So that was obviously really helpful going in. And then, um, yeah, the other logistics were pretty insane. And Midge took care of a lot of it on the front end, like buying kayaks and sea kayaks for all of us because after the whitewater, we switched into sea kayaks. And he actually hired a woman in Lima that he called our fixer. And her job was to like, Um, import the sea kayaks into Peru, for example, and then help try to arrange the logistics of getting them delivered to a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere where the flat water began. And um, one thing that, you know, I think is hard to avoid on an expedition this long, but we had to do tons of mid-expedition logistics. And so, you know, get to camp at night, get out the sat phone and start trying to figure things out. And that that was like definitely kind of a bummer because, you know, you're in this amazingly beautiful spot and you just had a really long day kayaking and you kind of just want to relax and enjoy where you are. But instead, it's like, all right, you're done kayaking. Now the real work begins. Start doing logistical stuff. But um, things worked out like shockingly smoothly. We didn't have any major logistical problems or snafus. So I feel pretty good about that. How are you getting food for this? Like how long of a trip are we talking here? Um, 148 days total. Obviously you can't pack that in a dry bag in the back of your boat. No, definitely not. So it was 25 days of whitewater and the first 10 days, uh, there was a road that we could meet up with a support van pretty frequently. So for the first 10 days, the van carried, uh, the bulk of our gear And then after the 10 days, then we dropped into the canyons and we did have to start self-supporting. So the longest we went was eight days. And then what we would do is like right before we got rid of our van, there was a pretty sizable town and uh, we met a guy there that was willing to do food drops for us. So we packaged up boxes of food that we'd give with to him with a, you know, a date and a location on it and say like, drop this at this bridge in eight days. And so we had three food drops and then we made it to the flat water. 
Did the food drops work out? Did he get it they there on time? They all worked out. Nice. Yeah, he did. It was pretty amazing. And, you know, even with the, like, whole Latin American time frame thing, like, you know, I think we waited three hours, but in the larger scheme of things, it seemed pretty insignificant. So, yeah, that all worked out, which was awesome. Um, yeah, then in the flat water, we had a – so the flat water – begins where Peru calls this region the red zone, which is like notoriously dangerous area for shining path, um, drug trafficking, indigenous people that are pretty scared of all outsiders. So they often express that by killing them. And, uh, wait a second. So the red zone, (laughs) so you get, you get out of the white water and then you hop into the red zone. Yes. Okay. And so red zone is this just full on jungle at this time? Steaming jungle? What kind of terrain are you in and what kind of people? And give me a little more detail on this killing. Why do you think, why, okay, why are you yeah. thinking this? Um, so it's very steamy jungle. We started the expedition at 15,000 feet and we got to the red zone. We had dropped 13,000 feet in elevation. So like most of our gradient was gone in the first 25 days, but it, yeah, it's um, jungle region and the reason it's so dangerous is um so the the indigenous people are called the ashanica and uh they have good reason to not like outsiders you know starting from like franciscan missionaries and the rubber rubber boom like that's kind of typical for south american indigenous people but in more recent times like the shining path terrorists were really active in this region and for people that don't know what that is in the 1980s and 1990s in peru it was um So it started out as a Maoist insurgency that was supposed to be like a revolution of the poor people, but it really quickly turned into just a really violent civil war and the poor people ended up kind of bearing the brunt of this violence. And, you know, scholars today are still trying to figure out like why this 180 degrees flip flop happened and why the Shining Path people ended up killing all the poor people. But um, the Ashanika lost like a third of their population during this time. And so in the 18, this is 1980 and 1990, a lot of people were alive and remember it quite well. And then in 2012, um, Peru overtook Colombia as the world's number one cocaine producing country. And so now what's left of the Shining Path work for the, the drug traffickers. And they obviously don't like anyone getting in the way of their business. And illegal logging is a big thing here too. Like, um, They estimate that 80% of the wood harvested in this zone is harvested illegally. And so all these people are kind of threats to the Ashanika. And if, you know, if they have good trees on their land, the illegal loggers will move in. And the the government, the military has not helped them basically at all. So they have felt the need to kind of take, take their safety into their own hands. And so, yeah, they have, you know, like they killed eight Peruvian colonists right when we were getting to Peru to start our expedition because these guys had come to set up an illegal logging operation and it's like obviously not good to murder people but the more I learned about it the more I understood why they're doing what they're doing but uh, we got permission letters there's like um, overriding bodies for that are kind of organizing the indigenous people and when we were in Lima before we started we got permission letters from them to travel through their area and basically what these served to do was like advise them that we were coming and let them know our intentions and that we weren't there to stay or to take anything from them we're just passing through and 
I think because of this and um, a couple other things we did, we had really good luck in the red zone. And the Ashanika, once they read our permission letters and found out what we were doing, they were really incredibly kind to us. And uh, yeah, they're good people just trying to protect themselves. So have there ever been any paddlers or any explorers have a bad issue? Like any Westerners? Yeah, so... Well, in 2011, um, a Polish couple was canoeing there, and they got murdered by the Ashanika people. And in 2012, a South African guy was um, like intertubing there by himself, and he got shot by the Ashanika, but he survived. Um, yeah, he he got pretty lucky, and he survived, but he got shot in with multiple shotguns. Not to take over your story here, but what was it like the first interaction when you guys were paddling down and someone, did they wave you over to the side? Did they come up on a motorboat? How did that? Um, so almost always they waved us over. And so with these permission letters, we also got told to check in at certain points and, um, kind of a leftover again of the shining path era every single town or village posts a guard 24 seven kind of down at their beach with a shotgun. And so basically the protocol was like, go find the guard, show him our permission letters, our passports and let him do what he needs to do. And then, yeah, then he'd usually see if we wanted to camp, see if we needed food. Um, and that all went pretty smoothly. The one scary time was uh, we passed a village that was not a required check-in, but the people, the Ashanika people started waving us over and uh, we were kind of slow to stop because we were really hoping not to stop. Like it was a Saturday and apparently drinking can be a big problem on weekends there. So anyways, we were trying not to stop, but it became really apparent that they weren't going to let us go. So we we pulled over and they gave us a huge lecture about basically everything that they were afraid of in outsiders and how they needed to protect their people. And they can't just let strangers pass by their beach without wondering what they're doing. And um, so at this point we also had, there was a motorized canoe coming with us that was carrying our food. This was back to the logistical part. Um, but we also had a, a local guy on the boat and they said to us, well, we're not mad at you because you didn't know the protocols of this region, but we are mad at your boat driver. So we're going to have to punish him. And we're all thinking what? like, what, okay, what does punishment mean? And like the whole beach was super serious and it was like a very, very tense situation. And then like the chief, or I think he was the chief was like talking with a couple other guys for a while. And then he turns and he says, okay, your punishment is you have to do 50 push-ups." And what? <laughs> so they're speaking in Spanish, which is their second language. Spanish is our second language. And I kind of am like hitting Don's shoulder and I was like, did he just say push-ups? But the word plancha for push-ups is also can be slang for like iron or grill. And I'm like, okay, are they going to grill him or is he doing push-ups? And then everyone kind of started laughing and I was like, okay, he's doing push-ups. This is a good thing. But yeah, that was definitely, it was a really scary situation, but it turned out to be a really funny situation in the end. Oh man. So who else on your team at this point? Is it just you, Don and Midge? Yep. Just the three of us. Okay. And so how were the, uh, before we get into any more trip, I have a lot of questions. Um, okay. How were the dynamics all the way up to this point between the group? Um, good. So in the whitewater, well, I guess I shouldn't just say good. 
I don't want to, I, I won't, I'm going to save a story of a funny early fight because it's part of the book and I don't want to give that away. But in the 25 days of whitewater, we kind of had this common goal, which was get Midge through the whitewater. Uh, we were working as a team. Whitewater kayaking is fun. So we had that going for us. And so that went quite well. The red zone also went quite well because Again, I think we had like this external threat that was making us bond together because we're all trying to survive the red zone, trying to do our best to get out of there as quickly as possible and not upset anyone in the process. And that went well. And about day 60 of the expedition, we got out of the red zone. And without any kind of external threat, I think we kind of just turned on each other and whatever angst or fear or boredom or anything you know and we couldn't like say we got to bond together and make it through this so we just kind of started devouring each other can you give me an example what was devouring each other like Mm. you took my pot and like start throwing (laughs) rocks at each other what what give me an example uh never came to physical blows luckily but uh lots of snide comments lots of passive aggressive you know midge was paying for the entire expedition um but he wasn't paying us and we all kind of thought we were a team, but every now and then he would like finish his meal. We were eating dehydrated meals. He'd finish his meal at camp and like toss it at my feet and be like, here's my trash. And, you know, then I would, you know, yell at him for a while. And, um, you know, there was a lot of problems about the pacing because Midge very rightfully so didn't want to paddle too hard or too long every day. Cause he was worried about getting tendonitis. He didn't want to, do anything that would jeopardize his success. But, you know, sometimes that meant just paddling six hours a day when, you know, we've got 12 hours of daylight and nothing else to do. So, you know, just little frustrations like that. And yeah, the, the biggest thing that I learned on this Amazon expedition is um, very tiny tweaks in your, in my mindset could make such a huge difference on my outlook of life of the expedition. You know, it's like, Without changing any external circumstances, I could absolutely hate Midge one day or really, you know, find him to be a good friend and be amazed by what he was doing. And it wasn't anything changed in his behavior. It was just a a slight adjustment of my mindset. Mm, Your state of mind. Exactly. I didn't realize how powerful it was until this trip. What about what about nature? What what were you surrounded by as far as? environment i mean you had this uh, kind of human danger i guess you would call it in the in the red zone was were there any animals you were scared of was it just constant jungle tweak um you know not too many animals we were scared of of course like probably watching too many jungle movies we'd always ask the locals like hey can we swim here or will the piranhas get us and they would always laugh at us and be like no you idiots there's no piranhas here <laughs> But they would warn us about, like, stingrays. There, We did see a couple that, like, had a bigger wingspan than my arms. And oh, wow. so they would say, like, you know, shuffle your feet and make noise when you get into the water, but watch out for the stingrays. Um, people there were also pretty worried about caiman, which we did see some at night if we, like, shined our flashlight on the shore. But um, the Amazon is pretty populated. You know, once we got down to the flat water, there was uh, a lot of people, a lot of villages. And so I think the vast majority of the wildlife gets sort of scared away by the people. Uh, we saw tons of fish and that was pretty cool. Tons of bird life. But um, after we got out of the whitewater canyons, we didn't see any more 
wild mammals. I guess we heard howler monkeys quite a bit, but we didn't see them. Were you just buying food with reales? How were you getting food and supplies? Yeah, so um, we both, all of us brought 50 days worth of dehydrated meals because we weren't sure like how soon we would start seeing villages regularly where we could buy food. So yeah, all of us had 50 days worth of food. I brought about 80 days worth of food because I'm vegan and I didn't know if I'd be able to find vegan food or not. But yeah, basically once we started hitting the bigger cities, we would uh, yeah go to the ATM machine, get whatever the local currency was and and go buy food. And it it was really easy for the guys because fish was always like abundantly available, including people would canoe up alongside of us and try to sell them fish while we were kayaking down the river and stuff. So that was pretty easy for them. And then could pretty much buy beans and rice and noodles and stuff in the bigger cities. But um, yeah, it was pretty easy to restock. So you're cruising, you made it through the red zone, you're in the, in the flat water and was it uneventful grind to the ocean or what, what happened through this, this stage? The two middle months were fairly uneventful. Like it was really flat, really boring, not much to report. And the last month got really interesting again. Um, it got to be super windy and it was always like a up up river wind so like if we stop paddling there's like basically no gradient i think from manaus to the ocean the river drops like one centimeter per mile Ooh. and uh yeah it's really flat so if we stopped paddling we would just get blown like forcefully back up the river and um big storms would come in too which would make big waves like 10 foot tall waves on the river and then 600 miles from the ocean we started hit started to hit the tides too and at first, like, they weren't that strong. We could paddle against them. But maybe with, like, three or four weeks to go, we could no longer paddle incoming tides. So that, that meant we'd, you know, we'd start paddling, maybe get a couple hours in the morning. But then when the tide would shift, we'd just have to sit sit it out for, like, five hours and then start paddling again. And, yeah, the, the last week was really rough. And we were in, um, at this point, racing sea kayaks that aren't that stable. So we kind of felt like we had to start thinking about not necessarily survival, but thinking about our paddling technique again and staying more focused. Sick. And so then where did you end? So before we went, we looked at a map and um, saw like the southernmost point of land that juts out and the northernmost uh, point of land that juts out and like drew a line between those two and programmed like a little waypoint marker into the GPS. And we were about two miles off the southern shore and just paddled across this little dot and then um, turned to paddle into shore. And uh, we had an awesome like white sand secluded beach overlooking the Atlantic Ocean all to ourselves. And then the next day we had to paddle about 18 miles back up the river, which was shockingly easy because we had the wind at our back. And um, from there, there's a little town we were able to boat and drive to Belem, which is where we flew out of. Wow, 148 days. Yeah. Did you guys party? Um, <laughs> a little bit. Midge brought a bottle of champagne for the for the last day, so him and Don drank champagne on the beach, and uh, we all stayed in a hotel together in Belém, and we partied a little bit, but we were also, I think, a little bit tired of each other by that point. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Midge is like. I mean, I'm sure you've just met these like super brilliant engineer or computer types. Like he just has a very different way of thinking and seeing the world. And 
like at the start of the expedition, he said, well, most people that do long expeditions don't like each other at the end. So I'm just expecting not to be friends with you guys anymore when we're done. And we're kind of like, oh, come on, like maybe we'll be different. And he's like, no, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we did all kind of have that feeling of like, yay, team, we did it. Okay, now we're going our separate ways and we'll have a little break. (laughs) I can only imagine. (laughs) 148 days is that right mm, that is that's a right yes. did you feel it was strong a long time. at the end of that how did your body feel um it's kind of a combination of strong and beat down you know not necessarily having like the most nutritious food or not really enough food and just kind of grinding day after day yeah I was uh yeah it was weird you know in some senses I felt like I keep on going forever because we were just in this groove and it was really refreshing to kind of strip life down to only this one goal, like paddle to the Atlantic. And so that was like a really, to me, a great mindset to be in, which made my body feel like it could do anything I asked of it. But then also once we knew we were done, it was kind of like, oh man, my shoulder's cracking every time I move it, everything hurts. And so it was nice to have a break. It was nice to use our legs again after basically, you know, we used them quite a bit in the white water, but the last four months we just sat on our butts and paddled. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Did you ever have, I've been to Brazil and one instance in particular, I call it jungle tweak. It's just, you know, it's hot. You're dealing with constant bugs, all this kind of thing. But I was hanging out over a river trying to scout a rapid you know you can't see the river half the time you know like it's hard to describe how thick the jungle is your 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 thickest forest the jungle is just thicker you know that's the only way i can describe it but anyway you can't even see the river unless you're in the river half the time and so anyway i'm trying to get a look at this rapid and i'm hanging uh, off the edge of the rapid and it's probably 30 feet down in the pool below this rapid and I look up at my arm, and literally there are 100 million ants <laughs> on my arm going faster than I've ever seen an ant go. And I just fully oh tweaked God. out and jumped off the cliff into the river. <laughs> Did, and, I mean, you were in that jungle for 100 days. I mean – how did you deal with the bugs? I mean, I hate to just like nitpick something like the bugs, but God, dude, they drove me insane. But yeah, no, they definitely drive you insane. And so we had one advantage of by the time it got really jungly, we didn't have to scout anymore because it was all just flat water and we didn't have to like go deep into the jungle anymore. And when we were out paddling, the bugs weren't that bad. But the times when they drove us the most crazy was um, the sand flies there were freaking insane so horrible and they would come out as soon as it got light out so if you're trying to go to the bathroom for example in daylight hours like these things are just going to attack any piece of bare skin that's exposed and so you know we tried so hard to like okay you've got to get up and poop before the sun rises or else you're going to start your day (laughs) in the most horrible ways and and so that was that was a really hard thing and then also at night when we would get to camp and just kind of want to again, chill out, have dinner, but yeah, you've just got like constant bugs buzzing in your ears and your nose and your mouth. And yeah, there was, uh, there was some, uh, temper tantrums, bug temper tantrums happening. <laughs> yeah. I bet. We had Tyler Brad on one time and he, did you ever see his case of leishmaniasis? 
Oh, I heard about that. And I think he got that from a sandfly. Yeah, yeah. You guys didn't get infected with any leishmaniasis. No, we were lucky. We did not get any leishmaniasis, (laughs) but Midge got it um, when he was rafting that Perimac River, like in his early planning stages of this Amazon expedition. So, yeah, he went on this overnight rafting trip to scope out that Perimac and got totally attacked by sandflies and was wearing shorts and a T-shirt the whole time. Like, he didn't have long pants and... He got it. Um, they couldn't figure out what it was, and he ended up spending like six weeks in a hospital on an IV. Once, because they when when they finally figured out what it was, he was so sick and uh, almost gone. But it did not dampen his enthusiasm for the Amazon trip. I <laughs> <laughs> wore a bug net. Yeah, exactly. Let's switch gears. Is there anything else you'd like to add specifically about the trip? I mean, I have a million questions, but. We can't. Uh, no, I think that's good. Like, there's a lot more details in the book if people are interested. But let's talk about the book. Okay. Where do I start? The book talks about a lot of your internal struggles. Uh, the introduction. You got to read the introduction. Is that published anywhere? The introduction to the book. Um, it was on kayaktheamazon.com. It was one of the blog posts. I'm not 100 sure if it's still up there, but yeah. Well, anyway, you read the book and there's a lot of internal struggles going on with you, planning for the expedition, talking about, you know, sending this letter to your friend to give to your parents if anything were to happen. How do you, what were the struggles of getting that from your head onto paper? How did the process of writing the book go? Let's start from the top. When you were on this trip, were you like, I'm going to write a book about this? Or did this come later? Uh, I had like an inkling of it when we started the trip because uh, I've always been interested in writing and I thought writing a book someday would be an interesting challenge and that was definitely an understatement. Um, but then when we started on this Amazon trip, I was like, well, this is, you know, I'm finally doing something worth writing a book about. So like I started thinking about it and I, because of that, I brought some notebooks and like wrote notes, journal stuff every single day which did come in handy. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really until afterwards that I knew that I would do it. And I always have this kind of funny attitude, which is, is probably lucky because it allows me to do a lot of things, but I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, sure. Midge, I'll kick the Amazon. Like how hard can it be? And then I'm like, I'll just write a book. That'll take me a couple of weeks. Right. You know, like I always sort of underestimate the challenges, but then that allows me to dive in. And then once I get started on a project, I get really determined to finish it. So it's probably, even though it's foolish, it might be a good cycle to be in. Um, But anyway, back to your question. Yeah. The first drafts of the book were really bad because they were like, kind of, we woke up, we ate breakfast, we went kayaking. And basically the feedback I was getting from everybody was, you know, you have to put more of yourself into this story. Like nobody, is going to relate with kayaking the Amazon. You have to give them something about you that that's relatable. And, you know, at the beginning of this chat, I said that I'm really shy and really private. And this was really extremely hard for me to put basically any of myself into the book. You know, I'm like, what do I feel comfortable sharing with the world? What is, what about my life is relatable to other people? But then, um, once I got a couple ideas and once I sort of made that initial crack, it really came a lot easier and I could see how much better it was making the book. And so that um, became good motivation. It's like, oh, these 
people were actually right. This is so much better. And so it came more easily after, after a few months of uh, torturing a little bit out of myself. Something I thought that was super relatable in your book was second guessing your, your career, your life choices. You mentioned some things in there about slipping away, just kind of slipping away from society and how you, you felt much more at home and much more at ease on an expedition. You'd spent so much time thinking about that, so much time doing that. And then looking at what you're sacrificing in, I don't know if it's sacrificing, but it's just that give and take. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that a little bit? Your kind of your kind of thoughts on that struggle? Yeah, so yeah, I guess you know, after that trip to Nepal, I started just wanting to do nothing but sort of river expeditions and I was able to do more and more and I yeah, I found myself coming back from expeditions and not really knowing how to talk to my friends or how to how to relate to family that well because I was spending more time off in the wilderness kind of by myself or with Don or with small groups of people and then coming back to real world where people were like oh you know we're just buying our first house we just got this promotion and so I started to feel like our worlds were like growing so far apart that there was like no longer any common ground and that wasn't true but that's just kind of what I the story I made up in my mind so then I would start more purposefully like cutting off those people and making more time, making more time for the rivers. And, you know, at a certain point it was good. It allowed me to focus on river stuff, but I did kind of wake up at a certain point. It's like, well, I'm really losing all the, all the human connections in my, in my life. And it's really important. It's really important to me to have both now the river time and the people time. I call that the thousand yard stare. You come off three months, you know, out on the river and, and, and living such a simple life. And people are talking to you and you're almost just like looking right through what they're saying. It's so, I don't want to say inconsequential, but it just, it just doesn't seem to resonate for a while. Yeah. It doesn't compute in your brain after what you've been through or something like that. What, what was the lowest moment of your trip? Um, okay. So yeah, I talk about this a fair amount in the book, but, um, so Midge originally invited me and Don to go help him through the whitewater. And then we were just going to go home after the whitewater. But one night Don said to me, he's like, well, you could become the first woman to kayak the Amazon. If you do this whole trip with Midge, are you sure you're going to be okay with leaving after the whitewater and walking away from this opportunity? And I was kind of like, Oh, well, I hadn't really thought of thought about it in that way, but you're right. Yeah. Let's do the whole thing. And it was just like a, automatic decision on my part and then Don was really starting to backpedal after that and he's like whoa 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 you're like are you sure this is this is gonna be a like a big commitment and then but anyway I had made my decision and then so he kind of felt like he had to go I guess but he wasn't ever that excited to be on the trip and he had more conflicts with Midge than I did um, so he was a little bit unhappy for the entire time because he was fighting with Midge didn't really want to be there and I kept on, uh, so it was just three of us, and Don and I are a couple. I thought Midge made a kind of a risky decision to invite a couple, so I made this commitment that I would be neutral. You know, I wouldn't side with Don just because he was my boyfriend. But the way that that manifested was in me being really harsh on Don, and every time he would get mad at Midge, I would be like, "Oh, come on, you know, Midge isn't that bad." And 
like, look, here's some bad things about you, too, and Midge is putting up with them. Like, I really <laughs> was horrible. <laughs> but in my brain, I'm like, oh, I'll make Don see that Midge isn't that bad. And then, like, 120 days into the trip, I got really, really mad at Midge, and I spent, like, 10 days just being absolutely furious with Midge. And one night, I was, like, venting to Don, and Don was like, oh, come on, Darcy, Midge isn't that bad. And I was like, what? I was like, you're not on my side. <laughs> and then it like that moment just hit me. I was like, oh my God, this is how you have felt for 120 days. And I'm complaining because I felt this way for 10 days. And I was like, I've been a horrible friend, partner, whatever to you. And so that was my lowest moment on the trip. Ah, okay. <laughs> just like there was a moment of reflection there when the smoke cleared. Exactly. <sighs> I wonder if it'd be funny to get you and Midge on the show. <laughs> and, and Dawn. That would be good. Too. And Dawn. <laughs> um, what, about the, what about your favorite moment? What sticks out as a, as a real highlight? Um, so it's kind of a long highlight, but I read Joe Kane's book, Running the Amazon, before we went, and they did the first Source to Seed Descent of the Amazon in 1985, and um, he talks about pink Amazonian river dolphins and how they rarely saw them. The species was going extinct. And so I'm thinking, you know, this is like 35 years later. I really hope we get to see one of these dolphins. And we saw them on starting on day 30. And then we saw them almost every day till the end. Uh. And it was really like these little guys, well, they're not little, but they're weird looking. And they make like a fart sound when they can't come up for air. And uh, we'd be like bored or kind of dejected or whatever. And then you just see these dolphins and they're so awesome because they were curious about us and they just come up and be like, <laughs> and like, <laughs> that was, that will be one of my like enduring favorite memories of the trip. Oh, killer. And so these are like pretty big full, they're, they're like, are they little animals or are they like, they're no, like... they're bigger than like, so the, the Amazon has little gray river dolphins too that looks they look like a regular dolphin but miniature maybe like three or four feet. The the pink Amazonian river dolphins they're probably like eight to ten feet long like they're they're big creatures and weird looking. If there's an eighteen year old girl listening to this show right now and she wants to start an expedition career she wants to explore the world what advice would you give her? I would say, okay, so a big part of my book, too, is that um, a lot of my doubts going into this trip or around this time of my life were coming from other people questioning my life choices. You know, for some reason, like, being a banker is seen as an acceptable career, but for some reason, a kayak guide wasn't. You know, even though I own my own business, I did all that kind of stuff, people were constantly asking, like, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to settle down? When are you going to you know, have kids? All this stuff that for some reason they felt irritated that I wasn't doing. <clears throat> and um, I don't have any regrets about... Oh, I can so relate to that. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, <laughs> That's <go on>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have any regrets about the way I've lived my life. But the, one th the advice that I would give is to like prepare people for this kind of negative pushback and... Like, don't let it get to you. And it's really hard to not let it get to you on, on some level. But if you're, if you're following your dreams, um, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of them. You know, like, if you're passionate about something, like, that's the greatest 
gift that you can have in life is to have a passion and to want to follow it and to want to put in all the hard work it's going to take and recover from all the failures that are going to happen. And if, if you have something like that in your life that uh, you just want to follow no matter what, um, go for it and shut out all the other noise. And like, I think I did a pretty good job of shutting out the noise, but it sort of like gets etched on your consciousness if, if you let it. And so it's always kind of in the back of in the back of your mind a little bit and it can to me it caused real struggles like in my mid-30s and even a little bit now although I think I'm getting better at not worrying about it but uh yeah don't feel like you're doing anything wrong just follow your passions that gives me cold chills that moment when you're actually trying to get on that expedition or get better at paddling that's like the that's when everything's simple you know yeah it's hard for people to understand that who've never who, who haven't fully jumped in feet first, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And it's interesting. So I, I'm not like a diehard Oprah Winfrey fan, but I was watching the Trevor Noah show last winter and she was a guest and he was like, Hey, Oprah, you know, you spend your life surrounded by successful people. So what is the common characteristic of successful people? And I really loved her answer. She said, um, people get to where they want to go because they know where they want to go. And a lot of people are being driven by what they think they should do, by what others want them to do, or what they've carried in their mind for a long time they can do. But the most important question you can ever ask yourself is, what do I want to do? And I love that definition of success. People who are successful know where they want to go. Is that right? Yeah, people get to where they want to go because they know where they want to go. Oh, I love that. That's got to be on one of the best Hammer Factor quotes right there. Thank you, Oprah. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, thanks, Oprah. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes knowing where you want to go is hard. Like, it can be confusing, and a lot of people don't know. But that's what I'm saying is when you find that moment where you're like, I know what I want to do. I know where I want to go. Don't let anything derail you. Oh, so pure. What about your family? Were they part of this group that was second guessing your decision or at what circle of, of your acquaintances were you feeling that? Um, so I'm, I'm lucky. My parents are 90% good. You know, there's been like a little pressure from them and, but for the most part, like once they knew I was serious about doing something, they, they didn't question it. They just said, good luck. We wish you the best. And so they were mostly good in it. So it's been, um, you know, like old high school teachers, for example, I'd run into them on the street and they'd be like, oh, you're still kayaking. Hey, eh? when are you going to settle down and get a real job? And um, sometimes just complete strangers, you know, that didn't really know anything about it. A lot of it, oddly enough, came from clients in Ecuador and, you know, who kind of got to know me over the years. And they'd be like, don't you think it's time you go do something else? And I'm like, well, then you couldn't come kayaking in Ecuador anymore. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> but about, I am super lucky that my family was pretty supportive, so thankful for that. What What about the sport of kayaking as a whole? What have you seen within the sport and the industry and to some degree your guiding business over, you know, the last, what, 20-something years? What do you see from then to now and where do you see it going? Yeah, this is a, kind of a, a tricky question. Um, well, a couple of things are interesting. You know, so many people in the retail industry of kayak, you know, selling kayaks, selling paddles, they still say that the sport is shrinking, um, it's not growing. And I don't find 
that that's true in my in my own kayaking life. You know, rivers that I used to go to and would never ever see anybody there are are crowded now. And so to me, it it feels like there's more kayakers, and I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's what it feels like to me. Um, the biggest trend that I've kind of noticed is, and I don't know if this is all the fault of Instagram or other forms of social media, but people want to be really good way too fast now, I feel like. And I think everyone who starts kayaking wants to be as good as they possibly can, as fast as they possibly can. But at least like when I was starting and, you know, even for 10 years after, it wasn't considered normal to like paddle the middle Kings in your first year of kayaking or something. And like a lot of, um, young kayakers that we paddle with or encounter now that kind of have this mindset that they're somehow like failing as a kayaker if they can't run 50 foot waterfalls in their first year of kayaking. And they, um, by, you know, and a lot of them are, do have good skills, but to me, there's kind of like a scary, gap in experience if you're running class five in your first year of kayaking you probably don't have a lot of rescue skills like a lot of these same paddlers like absolutely would never go down a run that they didn't know or without someone that knew it because they don't have like the the training to figure stuff out and that's been maybe the most interesting trend that i've noticed in the last 10 years yeah the the school of hard knocks is a part of whitewater anybody (laughs) anybody who doesn't know that you know i mean it, anyone is like oh the river is all lollipops and gum, <laughs> gumballs you know what i mean like you're not giving an accurate representation but the hard knocks are so much harder on hard class five versus yeah. the three and four zone you know yeah. so i see that as a as a thing too you want people to get their mistakes you know the quicker you can fail the quicker you can learn i'm a hardcore believer in that but i just think that you just can't those knocks are so hard on the, on, on the class five. Yeah, exactly. How is, uh, how is touring, how is your business going with, with COVID and, and what is, what is that affecting as far as like the adventure tourism world? I mean, I think yeah, I have an answer, it's, but <laughs> it, it's going to be interesting times ahead for sure. You know, we, we got pretty lucky that we finished up our season in Ecuador before things got bad. Um, but now, yeah, we've canceled some of our early trips. Um, small world has a grand Canyon trip at the end of August that we're not sure what's going to happen with. And, and, uh, yeah, as far as next winter in Ecuador, we're kind of in this moment where we're hoping for the best, but we're definitely preparing for the worst. You know, I'm kind of having a hard time, um, imagining a world where people are gonna, you know, voluntarily want to travel internationally to go kayaking by November, you know, it just doesn't seem that 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 is going to be that likely. So yeah, we're trying to work with, I mean, we have a small company and a small, you know, group of guides and drivers and cooks, and we're just trying to work with them to make sure that that they can make it through the winter if we don't end up having business. You know, if any clients want to come, we are definitely going and we are hoping to have a season, but we're also just being prepared for the idea that it's not going to be possible next winter. Mm. I'm conflicted. I, you know, there's a part of me that, that kind of agrees with that, but there's also this part of me that there's going to be this core group. That's like, my timeline is only this long, you know, I'm, I've got to get some things, you know, I'm not going to hide and just let too many years pass. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. And I do hope, you know, like if, 
if they do have better testing or, you know, the airlines change things up a bit that, you know, maybe all summer long of being pent up, people are going to be like, I'm ready to travel. Let's go do this. But, um, yeah, we'll see, I guess. So what's in store for you? Nor like what's in store for you normally this time of year, you're, you're kind of starting your North American trips and what's in store for you now? Yeah. So we had a big summer plan. My book, um, Amazon woman got released on March 3rd and that was right about the time we got back from Ecuador. So we had this, we bought a van, we had this really big like book tour slash marketing tour for small world adventures planned out that was kind of going to go all over the U S and Canada. Um, but obviously that got shut down. So yeah, we've been hanging out in Colorado. We've really tried to shift gears or I have for doing online book marketing stuff, which again, I'm not super awesome at that kind of thing, but been learning a lot. And so this has been a good forced downtime to kind of figure some of that out. Um, and now, yeah, we, we're not totally sure what it looks like. We're actually going to Idaho next week for middle fork and South fork salmon just on our own. And then, uh, we're going to hope the grand Canyon trip runs and maybe resume the book tour. If things open up enough to that capacity. Yeah, I think the book tour could be really good. It's just gonna you're gonna have to change it to a high value, low volume. You know, it's gonna have to be smaller groups. Yeah. It's gonna have to be a, like an interesting setting. I, you know, I think there's ways to get it done. Yeah. I don't know. Awesome. It's I, I can't believe this is the first time that our paths have crossed. Have our paths ever crossed that you know of in the past? No, I don't. We've never met in person, but I've long been an admirer of your amazing kayaking accomplishments. So I'm super excited that I got to talk to you today. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I have never been through a 148 day expedition. So you one up me there. That's for sure. I think that just makes you smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> is is there anything else you'd want to add or our listeners to know before before I let you off the horn here? Yeah, I think that's it. Um, like Oprah said, just figure out what you want to do and then go do it, no matter what anyone else says. Where can uh, where can our listeners follow you? Are you on Instagram through the Small World page? How do people? Yeah, people can find me on Instagram, Darcy Gector. Of course, my last name is really hard to to spell, but. Uh, um, G-A-E-C-H-T-E-R Facebook, Instagram would be awesome well Darcy thank you so much for your time and coming on the Hammer Factor I've loved this yeah thanks John I appreciate it <laughs>